Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, we'll be covering uh, verses 4 through 11. And the title tonight is The Depravity of Sodom. The Depravity of Sodom. Genesis 13, 13 says, The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And here our passage tonight gives us a clear picture of this exceedingly wickedness, this exceedingly wicked behavior of the men of Sodom. They were guilty of other sins as well. But what made Sodom so exceedingly wicked was their reckless abandonment to homosexual behavior. And our text shows us a scene in Sodom involving this wicked behavior. The men of Sodom, also is is the phrase for, for homosexuals. The men of Sodom gathered at Lot's house, demanding Lot to bring out his two guests, his two angelic guests, to be sexually abused by the men of Sodom. Today, people don't see homosexuality as the Bible describes it. And a troubling number of people look at it, homosexuality, as just another acceptable form of sex. But that's now how God describes it in the scriptures. In Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, the Old Testament. And some would use the argument that the condemnation of homosexuality was just for Israel. Because it's addressed to the Israelites and it's in the Old Testament. After reading Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, you see that God condemns homosexuality as well as other ungodly forms of behavior in all people, not just the Israelites. God doesn't have anything positive to say about homosexual behavior in His Word. No matter who the people are, or who have practiced it, or are practicing it. And again, the whole message is based on God's word, not my opinion, not my emotions, not my feelings. And, I, and I'm sure that all of us, maybe, or most of us, in some way, shape, or form, you know, have family, relatives, loved ones, friends, that are involved in that life. God does not approve of this lifestyle in any way. But he severely condemns it so that so God's word says that Sodom is a depraved city. And people will argue that Jesus never talked about it. And many say, show me where Jesus addressed it in the Bible, in front of people, in the in public. They say you won't find it in the Bible, you won't or in the New Testament, and you won't find that Jesus spoke about it because he never did. But in the Sermon on the Mount, you will find exactly where Jesus condemned homosexuality. All through the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus preached about obeying the law of Moses. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. That is of the Old Testament. He didn't come to destroy the Old Testament law. He didn't come to destroy the Old Testament prophets. He said, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. To fulfill the law of the Old Testament 
and the law of the prophets. He says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A jot and tittle is like the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I. Not the simplest form of God's word will pass away until it's fulfilled. Jesus said that. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines the word fulfill to cause God's will as made known in the law to be obeyed as it should be and God's promises given through the prophets to receive fulfillment. And what Jesus said speaks of the permanence of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 said, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And what does that same Old Testament law that Jesus commanded to be kept have to say about homosexuality? Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. God's word. An abomination. Also, Matthew 19, verse 4 says, The Pharisees also came to him, Jesus, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and he said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, how does that work in the homosexual relationship? To be fruitful and multiply. Luke 16, verse 16 and 17, Jesus said, The law and the prophets were until John, that is John the Baptist, And since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. John the Baptist's ministry was the dividing line between the Old and New Testament. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. With the arrival of Jesus, when he came, came the fulfillment of all the prophets' hopes. And Jesus emphasized that his kingdom fulfilled the law of the Old Testament. It didn't cancel it. So Jesus did speak about this topic. And that's, again, looking, knowing the scriptures, we see that. But people try to work their way around it and avoid it. Jesus' system was not a new system. It was the end of the old. The same God who worked through Moses was now working through Jesus Christ forevermore. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. So, okay, let's say Jesus didn't say anything about it. Well, it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That is for what's right. For reproof. For what's not right. Right. For correction, for making it right, for instruction in righteousness, for staying right. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
We also read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Wrong living will keep you out of the kingdom of God. And I love what he went on to say in that same verse. He said, and such were some of you. In other words, when you say, I, I, this is my life, I can't help it, this is what I am, what I, I can't get out of it. In Jesus Christ, he says, such were some of you, past tense, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, there's another argument that's given about Scripture. You know, it, 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 they say it, it, Scripture is just a collection of, of different men's ideas about God. It's a bunch of different men's idea about right and wrong. You know, it's, it's relative. What's right to you may not be right to me. What's wrong, to me, it may not be wrong with you. So one's person's interpretation of the Bible is just as good as another's. And that's what they say. And there's no place for dogmatism, for being rigid or inflexible. Men have been left free, they say, to, to believe or not to believe. To follow or not to follow any or all scriptures as it suits them. Each person becomes his own judge over scripture. And the end result for most is to just forget it altogether. Just disregard it altogether. But it is impossible to take Jesus Christ seriously and not Scripture seriously. Because in John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the same as the Word. He is the Word of God. So it's impossible to believe Jesus spoke absolute truth and not to consider Scripture to be that absolute truth. Because that's exactly what Jesus taught it to be. Absolute truth. If Jesus was mistaken, or mistaken on this point, there would be no, re no reason to accept Jesus, any, anything that Jesus said. And at the start of Christ's ministry, he makes it clear that his authority and Scripture's authority are the same. That his truth and scripture's truth are identical and inseparable. Jesus says, God's revealed word is not only truth, but is truth conveyed with absolute holy authority. And it's in that authority that Jesus came to teach and to minister. And it's to that authority that he commands his kingdom citizens to bow and obey. That's more than enough to understand that, that, that Jesus did speak about homosexuality. That's God's word. That's enough. And like I said, scriptures, there's other scriptures that, that do not find it in a positive light. And the Bible says that all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. It's God's word. And it never fails. And it means what it says. So with that little bit of introduction, let's begin now in chapter 19 with verse 4 and 5. 
And we read, Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. These were the men of Sodom speaking to Lot. And here we see the depravity of Sodom in their aggressiveness. And we see their aggressiveness today. Trying to, to force upon us that, that this, this lifestyle is normal. Uh, it, it needs to be accepted. And, uh, you know, it, and, and if not, hey, well, we're, we're called all kinds of things. These homosexuals that came to Lot's house were very aggressive in trying to get to Lot's guests. This wasn't anything, there wasn't anything dignified about their behavior. This was a forceful attack on innocent men just for their own pleasure, their own self-gratification. And it was a large group of men that came to Lot's house. Because it says the men of the city of Sodom, it said young and old. It said from all over the city surrounded Lot's house. They made it clear to Lot that they were there to engage in sex as a group. They surrounded the house. And in verse 4 they said, bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. And the Bible makes it very clear that what these men wanted to, what these men wanted to do to these guests. They wanted to have sex with them. The words to know them is a euphemism for sexual relations. Men having sex with men is not God's original design. And we just look at the body of a man and a woman. And that's, you know, it's not that hard to figure out. It is a deviation of the normal sex life. Again, Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. You cannot separate Christ's teaching from God's teaching or the apostles' teaching on homosexuality. Jesus was there, and Jesus was there when Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, when God was going to destroy the Tower of Babel, remember it says, come, let us go down and confuse their language. Let us. And later on in the, in the New Testament, we see that as being the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was there when the Father destroyed Sodom. There's nothing right or normal about it. But the world is trying to make us believe that there is. It's against nature. The demands of the, uh, uh, to normalize homosexuality are in direct conflict with religious freedom. And we have to stand strong. We have to stand strong. We can't cower. We can't flinch. We need to stand on the truth of God's word. You know, this group of people that were radicals are trying to make you and me and millions of others think that what they do is normal. And it's all right for us and it's all right for our children. The Bible shows us that the practice and the acceptance of it was very popular in Sodom. 
And it's seen in several ways in our text. First, it's seen in the people that are involved in it. Verse 4 says, Men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city. And this strongly points to the fact that practically all the people of Sodom were practicing homosexuality. With most of the city involved in this, in this ungodly practice, we can understand why God brought his judgment on the city and those who were living there. Now, we can't soften our stand against what God stands against. We can't water it down. We can't say, well, you know, no. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Many Christians have caved in. Many churches have caved into the pressure that the world has put on them. And now we're seeing, you know, lesbian pastors and, and, and homosexual pastors in the churches today. And the silence of Christians on this subject is almost like saying, hey, they don't consider homosexuality a sin. The truth is, it's a subject that they can't be, with, that they can't be silent about without being guilty. The church must bear witness to the truth. God's truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth on this subject, or the church is a liar, and the Spirit of God will depart from her. The church is under oath in a way to testify, and ministers in churches who don't call it sin are bearing false testimony for God. And it's probably one of the reasons for the low state of religion that many churches have taken the wrong side. And they've allowed influence and pressure to win over the principle of God's word. And they're afraid to call sin, sin. They're afraid to call it by its true name. The sin of homosexuality. God said it's an abomination. Then we also see one of the characteristics of it, the lack of shame for the sin. The sin of homosexuality was so popular that it was done without shame, openly in public. Any different today? No. It's flaunted everywhere. Marches, parades. We see it. There wasn't anything hidden about what they wanted from Lot's guests. And an increasing sign that homosexuality is growing more popular is the increasing openness about it in our society. Like I said, there are now marches and parades in support of it. As Jeremiah said of his people in his day, we can say of homosexuality today. Jeremiah 16, were, were, they, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. There's no shame. There's no blushing over it. All of these signs of the increasing popularity of homosexuality are also signs that divine judgment is also just around the corner. The public display of their unashamed and unrestrained pursuit of Lot's two guests was followed shortly by devastating judgment from God upon Sodom. This should wake up our nation. Homosexuality is so accepted, it's, it's invading many places. It's, it's, it's invading many positions in society and high places in government, even in churches. And when it's that popular, watch out. Because God's judgment is on its way. And just because it's popular it does not make it right. It doesn't mean that it's right. I mean, again... 
the, the popular consensus, the majority, does not mean it's right. And once again, there were millions of people that were drowned in the flood and there were only eight saved. The popular consensus was wrong. And it's still that way today for the most part. It doesn't mean that the people are right just because most of them go that, a certain way. It doesn't make it right. It only makes it a bigger curse for man because it invites terrible, destructive, and justified judgment on our society. Also, we see the attempt by, by Lot to pacify the homosexuals. And there's a lot of that going on today. Lot tried to protect his guests, which is unlike our times, when in Lot's time, that was considered a sacred duty. When somebody in, in the Old Testament times, when, it, when somebody came into your house, it was your duty to protect them. And that's what we see Lot doing here, though it wasn't right. Look at verses 6 through 8. So Lot went out to them, that is to the men of Sodom, through the doorway. He shut the door behind him and he said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now how I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under, have un, have come under the shadow of my roof. Man, Lot's attempt to pacify the men of Sodom is really sad here. And it shows us how not to deal with this sin or any other kind of sin. Lot tried to get along with them, but we don't have any obligation to get along with wrong or evil. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 14 and 16, he says, depart from evil. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And Lot's attempt to pacify their evil is another example of the uselessness of dealing leniently with sin. And if you're wise, you, you don't pacify evil. You punish the evil, whatever it is. And you'll never get victory over sin if you try to overcome it by being nice to it, by trying to make a deal with it, negotiate with it. When we can see that the, that the lot didn't stop their attack, though he was trying to... Brothers. Brothers, he called them. He attempted to deal with them his attempt to deal with them only encouraged them even more to get what they wanted because, you see, it caused them to be more insistent. It caused them to be more aggressive in satisfying their unnatural desires. Now, some will say that, that Lot did, uh, uh, you know, condemn the men of Sodom. When, when, when he said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. But even though what he said might impress some people, it was just a mild rebuke compared to what he should have done. Compared to what he needed to do. We'll see that, that, that his words weren't sincere, even though he called them brethren. Calling them brethren shows us his compromising attitudes towards sin. And even though we have this go easy on sin philosophy today, that doesn't slow down the stop of evil either. 
It's firmly accepted by society today. Go easy on evil. We see it in the criminals, you know, sentencing today. They say we need to show more love and more understanding. When people are slow and lenient in condemning any sin, but they're quick and strong in condemning us, that supposed lack of... Where's your love, brother? Where's the love? When they're quick to condemn us because they say we don't love because we're opposing this sin, it only shows the wretched condition of their heart. The accusers are showing what a great lack of love they have for the things that are are right. And they frown on those of us who are outspoken in condemning any kind of sin. Lot didn't have the quality of compassion that was really needed to deal with this situation. The men of Sodom swarmed his house like a plague of locusts on a cornfield. Strong words of rebuke and condemnation is what was needed at that very moment. But Lot tried being nice. He tried to negotiate with them. He called them brothers. He begged for peace at any price, even willing to go as far as throwing out his two daughters to them to do whatever they wanted with them. I mean, how sick is that? Lot's lack of holy anger about this sin was far from right. To take a mild stand at sin is to support it. The psalmist said in Psalm 97, 10, You who love the Lord hate evil, not the person. I'm not saying hate, I'm saying hate the evil. Anything less is betraying God. And Lot's main way to pacify the men of Sodom here was to offer them, Hey, take my two daughters as a substitute for the angels. Do whatever you want to them. So his attempt to compromise causes them to cause them great suffering. I mean, Lot's offer is, is unthinkable. It's shocking. It's sickening. I mean, that's a scumbag of a father. To throw his daughters to the men of Sodom to do whatever they wanted with them. Lot's carnal worldly living showed his insensitivity. Lot's thinking was totally messed up because of his living in Sodom, because of living in in an ungodly, unholy environment, whatever it is. He was probably seriously desensitized about how wicked Sodom was. And the more you live around wickedness and and sin and and ungodliness, sooner or later you're going to become desensitized to it. It doesn't bother you anymore. Lot's offer to sacrifice his two daughters showed the upside-down attitude that he had about sacrifice that comes to those who walk contrary to God's ways. But that's what the worldly Christian does. Lot gave up what what he should have held on to. Lot gave up what he should have held on to, you know, with all of his strength, with all of his might, but he held on to what he should have dropped like a poisonous snake. When we walk contrary to God, we will sacrifice character for reputation. We'll sacrifice purity for popularity and position. The spiritual for the material and eternal things for the temporal things. What the men of Sodom did was demeaning 
in the way that they treated Lot's guests. They wanted to defile Lot's guests. They had no respect for Lot's property. They wanted to break down Lot's door, verse 9 says. They were destructive. So the lifestyle shows, the lifestyle shows that it's demeaning to others. It's destructive to others. And God's word here describes their character and their demeaning, uh, defiling, and destructive behavior. Many in the world today, especially the news media, want to describe them as, as a person of character and maturity and wisdom, trustworthiness. While those who oppose homosexuality, we're described as illogical, homophobic, homophobic bigoted, haters, religious fanatics. But you see, that's not the way God pictures things. Our passage is what tells us that. Look at verses 10 and 11 now. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. So punishment now comes on the scene. After the angels rescued Lot and shut the door to protect them inside the house, the men of Sodom were inflicted with blindness. The angels inflicted them with blindness. This punishment was from God. No matter who it is, no one can continually violate God's word, God's commands, without sooner or later experiencing his judgment. And just because society doesn't punish man for his evil behavior does not mean God won't do it. Sinful man often ignores and denies the fact that God is concerned about how they live, how they behave, and that they must reckon with God about their actions sooner or later. Man is mostly concerned about what his peers think about him, what the peer, his peers think about his behavior. They don't care about what God thinks, but they need to be concerned about what God thinks. Because when men persist in acting contrary to God's way, the day will come, <clears throat> sooner or later, when God will let men know how he feels about their rebellious ways. And it won't be a nice day for the sinner. The men of Sodom are now starting to learn this truth. And before another day is over, they're going to learn a lot more about what God feels about their abominable behavior. The blindness that God brought upon them, the men of Sodom, wasn't just a judgment on them, but it was to protect Lot's household as well. And this is an important lesson about the punishment of criminals and criminal behavior. We punish criminals not to send them just a message about their unacceptable behavior, but also to protect the innocent people of our society. If judgment hadn't fallen on the men of Sodom at Lot's house, those innocent inside would have suffered. The angels, <clears throat> the angels at Lot's house were very concerned about the well-being of the innocent. And the way we see criminals treated today with kids' gloves, man, it's time to turn things around and to think about the well-being of those who are innocent because they're the ones who suffer while the bad guys get away. And it seems whenever laws are passed, and we see it all the time, or whenever a criminal, criminal is taken to court and then punishment is being considered, oh, everybody gets teary-eyed. Oh, they're going to go to prison for 20 years. Oh, that's such a long time. And that they murdered somebody. What does that do to the, to the family, to the relatives, to the friends, to the loved ones? What does that do to those in society? 
if that person doesn't get it, it's just sentencing. They get teary-eyed. They start feeling sorry for them. So the punishment is soft. And now the innocent are put in a lot of danger. But when punishment is given to the criminals, we need to think about the safety of the law-abiding citizens. They should be the first consideration when, giving the, when the, 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 the criminal is been get, being given their punishment. When the criminal is given the right sentence, we won't see them getting off with lenient sentences. So the angels punished the men of Sodom severely enough that Lot gained uh, total protection from them. And our laws have to do the same thing or they won't be fair laws. The blindness inflicted on the men of Sodom, it wasn't total physical blindness. It wasn't that they couldn't see at all. It was a partial blindness. It made them unable to see clearly. They couldn't clearly see the front door that was right in front of them, though they could obviously see other things. The Hebrew word used here is translated, that's translated blindness is found only in 2 Kings chapter 6. It means to cover with a skin, to produce film over so that, again, you don't see clearly. Elisha didn't ask the Lord to command the angelic army to destroy Ben-Hadad's weak weak troops. So God gave Elisha a much better plan. Elisha had just prayed that the Lord would open his servant's eyes, but now he prayed that God would cloud the eyes of the Syrian soldiers. So the soldiers weren't made totally blind or else they couldn't have followed Elijah. But their sight was clouded in such a way that they were able to see but not really know what they were seeing. They were under the delusion that they were being led to the house of Elijah, but Elijah was leading them to the city of Samaria. The same with the the men of Sodom. The men of Sodom can see, but they were disoriented so that they weren't able to find the door. The type of blindness is a severe form of divine judgment. But it's the beginning of the end when we, have, when we start you know, being blind to those things around us. When men persist in their sin and they won't listen to reasoning about the, 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 the wrongness and dangers of their sin, God finally gives them up to a mind unable to recognize the obvious sin. The obviousness about their sin. Sinners can't reason any longer with understanding about their ungodly ways. It's the judgment that the Apostle Paul talks about clearly in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 32. I'm going to read it to you. He said, Because although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and also four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Notice, God will give them up. He will give you up when you will not retain God in your mind. When When you know God, but you don't glorify Him and you continue to do your own thing. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to, do, to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they worshiped and served the creator or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen, it says. For this reason, God gave them up. Here's the second time. God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. 
Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lusts for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error. Notice, their penalty of their error, which was due. The word error here, it means a wandering. It means a forsaking of the right path in doctrine or morals. And then Paul went on to say, and even as they did not like to retain God in the knowledge, the third time God says, he gave them over. He gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteousness of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You may not do them, but if you approve of them and enjoy those things, you're just as, you're just as guilty. Persist in your sin and eventually you will be blinded until you're destroyed. And even though these men of Sodom were struck with blindness, they didn't stop pursuing their evil lusts. Verse 11 says they became weary trying to find the door. Even though they couldn't see it clearly, they continued to search for it. They wearied themselves still trying to find it. Man, it's bad enough to be struck by God, but it's even worse when a person or persons are so hardened in their rebellion that they continue to move on in their evil way. And while the men of Sodom clearly didn't realize the extent and the nature of, of, of their judgment, how, how, how severe it was, they couldn't help but know something was strangely wrong. I mean, you know, why can't we see clearly what's, what's going on here? But even in spite of it, they didn't stop pursuing their sin. It's like Hosea said in, chap, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 8. He says, they set their heart on their iniquity. Their hearts are set on doing evil. And the ultimate result of ignoring God's judgment was the fiery judgment that came soon. That came soon to the, the, the city of Sodom. And it was a judgment that they could not escape. I want to close with these final words. There are a lot of people, like the men of Sodom, who suffer the consequences of their sin, but they still persist in rebelling against God anyway. Many in society refuse to pay attention to the message that God is sending through many of the great disasters that we're seeing today, like the floods and the earthquakes and the hurricanes and the fires. Oh, they're just an act of God. Oh, it's just, it happens all the time. And no, hey, God is in control of the weather. He's in control of the earthquakes. He's in control of everything. When it's suggested this is God's doing, hey, God is judging. God is, God is sending a message. But when we suggest that, oh, they try to tell us, you know, that, that, that no, that, that's not it. When we suggest that God is trying to tell us something through these disasters, they get angry at us when we say, this is, oh, how could God could do that? How could all of these people be killed? How would God do that? Read the Bible. They get angry. God wouldn't do that. He's a God of love. And they ridicule us. They ridicule the idea. 
and then they just keep on living their evil life. Like drugs and alcohol that ruin people's lives. They keep on doing it anyway. They continue to feed their fleshly appetites through illicit sex, risk deadly diseases. And we now just heard on the news about this super gonorrhea that nothing is working on. But what happens? They keep on having illicit sex. They continue to feed their fleshly appetites. And again, those sex, you know, risks, deadly diseases, they keep on living immoral lives anyway. Men and men are always blaming God for their trouble. Why would God do this to me? No, God didn't do this to you. It's not God who's to blame. And over and over again, God warns men of, of the consequences of evil. But they go on ignoring God's warnings. And they try to rationalize away those warnings. It's not, you know, they try to say it's something else. Or in their spiritual blindness, you know, they don't recognize them as warnings and they continue in their evil way. But sooner or later, these attitudes bring devastating judgment as the experience of the men of Sodom experienced and shows us here. Father... Help us, God. Help us, Lord, to see your word is truth. And God, not to try to rationalize away what it means, what it says, God. Help us not to water it down, God. For your word, as Jesus, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your word does not, ab- does not fade away. Your word is going to come to pass from Genesis to Revelation. God, help us to stand upon the truth of your word, God. Help us to see sin for what it is. Displeasing to you. And as Paul said, those who practice these things, and he read off, we read off that long list of, of specific behaviors, though that wasn't an exhaustive list. It wasn't the end of all things. But he said, those who practice those things, those who, those who do those things, it will keep them out of the kingdom of God. For you have called us to be holy, for you are holy. Lord, help us to be bold in what we believe. It's easy to say, I believe this. But then when we're put to the test, we, 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 we cower and we flinch you know, and we back down. Lord, help us to be what you've called us to be, Lord. Men and women of God, standing upon your word of God, our anchor. Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.